Christianity is not about perfection. That is not what we're aiming for at all. This is about progress. This is about a process. This is about slowly over time throughout the rest of our lives becoming the people God wants us to be and become more and more like him. So how do we change? That's really the question that we're answering over the next six or seven weeks as we finish this off. And in the Bible, you're going to see again and again that this is a really broad answer. Now, if you know me, I would love to give you an eight-word, summarized, condensed, tweetable, memorizable little thing that you just memorize and apply to your life and remind each other of, and we're good to go. That's how we change. Boom, it's done. But actually, the Bible has far more texture and depth and breadth to it. That's why we're covering this over about nine or so weeks. Welcome, you guys. There's a bunch of seats. Come and find a place. Be at home here. But I want to say that there's such a breadth to this, but sadly the church doesn't always treat it like there's a broad answer to this question. And you might have seen this if you've grown up in the church, kind of like I have. I've been around the church since I was little. But often what the church does is we take one of the answers to how we change, one of the answers that the Bible gives us, and we build our entire theology around that. We make camp on that one truth. So I'm going to kind of characterize this a little bit this morning, and if you've been in church, this will probably make sense to you a little bit. But actually what can happen is we emphasize one truth, we focus just on the one at the expense of the rest. So if you've ever been around a very reformed Bible teaching emphasizing church, then the answer to the question, how we change, looks something like this, the Bible, more Bible, more scripture. We need to get the word of God in us. Memorize it, read it, Mem- uh, what is the word? A marinade in the scriptures of God. Let them go into your heart and your mind and your soul. Change your body, change your actions, change your life. Don't you know what the Bible says? Romans 12 verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John 8 verse 32, the truth, God's truth will set you free. And we can easily make camp there saying the way we change is the scriptures. And that is completely true. But what can happen, and I'm sure some of you have seen this, is if we emphasize truth at the expense of some of the other things, that we can become a little bit cold, a little bit black and white, a little bit right and wrong, and we can be a little bit harsh and compassionless and graceless with people when Jesus actually came from the Father full of truth and grace. So that's maybe one camp. What about the evangelicals? should all want to be evangelicals, even though that word has got some stigma to it, because evangelical means gospel people. The evangel, the evangelion is the gospel. So evangelicals would answer the question, how do we change? Need to go deeper into the gospel. You know, if you are struggling with sin, if you're struggling to change, if you're struggling to overcome some things in your life, you need to go deeper into the gospel. Remind yourself of the cross. Remind yourself of Jesus. Remind yourself of what he's done for you. Remind yourself of your new identity in him. Don't you know that you are loved by the Father? You are chosen, that you are forgiven, that you are made new, that you're a new creation. Don't you know who you are in Christ? What about the charismatics, the spirit people, the gifts of the spirit people? They'd probably answer this question by saying, you need to have a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. And again, that's completely true. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit is present, we are able to overcome sin break free of strongholds in our lives, become a new kind of person, live free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But again, the weakness with this kind of group can be that we become a bit passive. We go, well, this is all the Spirit's work, so I'm just going to let go and let God, which is not a biblical idea at all. The Spirit is going to do the work in me. I don't have to do it. And we just kind of leave it all over to Him. 
Because what we see in the New Testament is, yes, power encounters with the Spirit. The Spirit setting people free from sickness, healing people radically. The Spirit setting people free from demonic oppression. Actually, mindsets just captive to the demonic. We see that and we believe in that. I want us to be the kind of church that prays for people to be healed and set free. But at the same time, we don't see in the New Testament these power encounters where people's character is radically changed in an instant, where people who were wild are all of a sudden godly and glowing like Christ. No, character formation takes a long time and is part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. What about the mystics or the contemplatives? If you were here last week, you would have heard Kimmy say, if we want to change, we need to spend more time with God. We need to abide in Him. John 15, you know, or 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We become what we behold. So if you're focused on Him, you're becoming like Him. If you're focused on other things, we're becoming like them. So if we want to change, we need to give ourselves to prayer to the spiritual disciplines, to a slowed down spirituality, to getting rid of some of our tech, some of the busyness of our lives, to make time distraction-free, to be alone with God and to be transformed by Him. Those are just four camps we could go on. There's definitely some groups of the church that say, if you want to change, we need to serve. We need to serve the poor. We need to uh, care for the orphans and widows in our city. There's so much injustice and brokenness in Durban. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We need to be like Him if we want to become like Him. Do you not know that Jesus is a missionary sent down from heaven to earth? We want to be like him. We need to live on mission. Or if you want to change, we need to give ourselves to the community of the church. You know, we need to be known. We need to be accountable. We need to be close. We need to be deeply connected and vitally involved in the church because as iron sharpens iron, one man or woman sharpens another. We are changed in community through one another, through the church. And as you hear all of those seven different things, and there would be more, you're probably sitting here going, well, it's all of them, right? It is. It's not just one. It's all of those things that help us to change, to become more and more like Jesus. It's all of them. How we change involves both grace and effort. Now, I know some of you are hating that right now. A little red light throbbing side of your chest. It's like a heresy alarm. This is probably a dangerous church. Effort, effort, worry. I just want to put a quick scripture on the screen. I ended, uh, if you could put up Titus um, 2, verse 11 and 12. I read these this morning, and I just thought this is such a helpful balance for us as we think about God's work and our work and how we change. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is what God does. Salvation is entirely the work of God it is a free gift given by grace. But what does verse 12 say? Training us, you and I, to renounce. We do the renouncing. To renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How we change is both God's work and our work. It involves both effort and energy on the part of God and us. You might have heard the quote by Dallas Willard, who said, the gospel is not opposed to effort, but earning. Sanctification, or how we change, involves your effort. It involves your blood, sweat, and tears as much as it involves Jesus' blood, sweat, and tears on the cross. It is a work of both of us. Sanctification involves the work of the Word, the Scriptures, and the work of the Spirit. It involves being and doing. Being is who we are, our identity, and doing is what we do, our activity. 
How we change involves the mind and the heart and the body. It involves the individual, my work, and it involves the community, our work, to help one another change. How we change involves inside-out change, the stuff God does inside of us, deep in our hearts by the Spirit, and it involves outside-in change, the things we do, the decisions we make, the habits we put in place, the practices of our lives that help us to become a certain type of person. How we change is both God's work and our work. Well, we wanted to start the series focused on the God part of all of this. And the reason is this is not a self-help series. This is a series centered on Jesus and his work in our lives. And the other reason is because this is the way the New Testament does this. If you read some of Paul's letters or the letters in the New Testament, you see that it always starts with God, the cross, who he is, what he's done for us. And then it gets onto what we do in response to our new identity in Jesus. How we change always begins with God. It's his work that initiates it for us. And only then do we get onto our stuff. So we're starting this journey with him, not with life hacks or clever ideas or methodology. We're starting with Jesus. And I want to say this today. If the last two weeks you've got nothing out of it, if today you don't know what I'm talking about, you get nothing out of today, I want to encourage you to go to Jesus with this. You can pray a very simple prayer, very short prayer. Say, Jesus, I don't know what Grant's speaking about, but I've got this area of my life that I want to change. I need help in this way. Would you come into this part of my life? Would you help me? Would you show me the way? I don't know what to do. I don't know the, your work, my work stuff. Would you help me to become the person you've called me to be? And I believe Jesus will take you by the hand and begin that journey in your life. But today we're going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in helping us to change. So if you do have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 8. Otherwise, the verses will come up on the screen behind me. But the heading in my Bible here speaks about life in the Spirit. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, I hope we'll be able to cover a little bit about what that means today. But life in the Spirit is one of the ways that we begin to change. And the verses say this. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Get this. For God has done. This is obviously God's work. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. Again, that's his work. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God's work. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds. This is our work. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's an amazing passage. I really would recommend you read through that again, meditate on that, pray that through, try and get some of that in you. But let's start in verse 1 again like we did two weeks ago. There is therefore now no condemnation, not some, not a little bit, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I said two weeks ago when I spoke about this, that there's this reality that if you're in Christ here today, if you're a Christian in this room, there is no condemnation for you in Jesus. God's not angry with you at all. But we still live in this tension of the reality. Although that's true and that's a wonderful thing, what Jesus has done for us, at the same time, I sin every single day. I struggle with sin. I struggle with the the flesh that it warned us about there. I'm not the person I would like to be. And Paul the Apostle, who wrote Romans 8, experienced the very same thing. And he knew that this wrestle with sin was going to be a lifelong battle. This would be something he would deal with until the day that he died. So a few verses before, he described his battle this way. Romans 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions. Anyone else there? That's me. I don't understand my own actions sometimes. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That is definitely me from time to time. So I want to ask you a question. What do you feel when you sin? When you mess up, when you fail, you don't live up to your own standard or God's standard. What do you feel? What do you experience internally? Shell and I um, have visited the USA a couple of times over the last few years. Really amazing place. But I think being there, you realize our South Africanisms and our Durbanisms. And I guess this happens anywhere you go that is a different culture. But my wife has lived in the US, in the UK, in Zimbabwe, and here. So she makes fun of Durban a little bit and teases our accents. One of our Durbanisms is uh, the way we pronounce some words. So you might have noticed this. We don't say we're going to sweep the floor with a broom. We sleep, sweep the floor with a broom. We don't eat fish and chips. We eat fish and chips. That's the way we kind of do it in derbs. But while we were away, this one South Africanism just stood out to me in a new way. This woman named Meryl Vinant, who was a South African living over there, told us the story of being on the side of a soccer field, and her son was playing soccer, And everything was going fine until one of the boys on the field, on the team, had a terrible fall and tripped and landed on his face in front of everyone. And Meryl, being a good South African, exclaimed, Ah, shame, shame. And that is what we would do. That is such a beautiful, compassionate, warm, loving way to reach out to someone who's just messed up in front of a group of people. What do you think everyone else around the field thought? They thought she was a monster. They were horrified that this lady in this boy's most embarrassing moment would publicly shame him in front of parents, family, and friends. Shame on you, boy, for failing and letting down your team. You've dishonored your family. Get out of here. Shame on you. Meryl's a real monster. But I say that because in my conversations with so many Christians, I think we feel the same thing about God. You know, we don't think of the nice South African, oh, shame. We think of the shame on you for what you've done. God is like a mean parent on the sidelines, shaming us and scolding us when we don't live up to these perfect standards. Even though Romans 8 verse 1 says there is 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't believe that. We don't live in that truth. We live as if God is disappointed with us. We live as if God is a father who loves us because he has to. You know, that's what good parents do. But really, he's just tolerating us because we're his children. See, every Christian needs to be converted, not just to faith in Jesus. We also need to have another conversion, a deeper conversion, maybe many conversions, but a conversion from shame and performance living, a shame and performance mindset, into an acceptance and approval mindset inside of Christ. We can't live believing that we are shamed all of the time. We need to live accepted as God's children inside of Christ. Now, we feel shame because we have an idea of the kind of person we should be or the kind of standard that we should be living up to. And we feel shame when we don't live up to that standard, when we aren't the kind of people we believe we should be. Guilt is a little bit different because guilt is when we feel bad over what we've done, but shame is when we feel bad over who we are which is a much deeper existential, complicated thing. And in the scriptures, Adam and Eve were the first people to go through this. You know, they sinned and then felt shame. And what did they do in response? They hid from God, they ran away from God, and they tried to cover up so that God wouldn't see their shame, their mistake, what they had done. I don't know if you've experienced shame before. I remember being eight years old, and our family was down the south coast. We were in the Trans Sky at a beautiful hotel. It was an amazing holiday. There was uh, someone who worked at the hotel kind of taking care of all the younger people so that the adults could, I don't know, get up to whatever they wanted to do. And my sister and I were um, around the trampoline with a bunch of the other kids one of the days and jumping on the trampoline and taking our turns and having a lot of fun. And I remember um, probably wanting to fit in, probably wanting to be a little bit cool or make people laugh or whatever it was. So I was teasing my sister and calling her some mean names, which is really horrible, but I was doing this. And I timed one of these rude jabs wrong the one time as my sister hopped off the trampoline and as another girl hopped on, which is mean in and of itself. But as this girl hopped on, I said, oh, here comes Miss Stupid jumping on the trampoline as this deaf girl jumped onto the trampoline. And the lady who was looking after us at the time said to me, you can't say that, that's not okay. And my body went cold. Have you ever felt that before? You feel, you realize in that moment, everyone thinks I'm saying this to this girl. I'm not saying this to my sister. They think I'm making fun of this girl because she's deaf. And I died inside. It was guilt over what I've done, but shame over who I am. I'm the kind of person who makes fun of someone who's deaf. That's who I am. And that's what everyone thinks of me. So what did I do? I didn't run away. I guess I could have run away like Adam and Eve, but I tried to cover myself up, cover myself and hide from the embarrassment. So I just ramped up my teasing of my sister. I got meaner and more vocal and louder. Every time she was around, I just said really mean things to her. So everyone would know that comment I made to that girl who happened to be deaf wasn't her. I was trying to say it to my sister. That was my little internal justification. It's a really, really good older brother, you guys. But I say that because we do the same. We hide or run from God when we mess up, and we try and cover ourselves or do something so that no one thinks we're that kind of person. We sometimes struggle with shame and unworthiness and this feeling that we don't measure up or we're not good enough and try and cover up the things we say and do because we're not believing and living in the things that God says about us our new identity in Christ. We're not believing that in Christ there's no condemnation. 
So we're defining ourselves by what we've done, not by what he has done for us. Don't know if you know this, but on the cross, Jesus dealt with your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins, the things that you haven't even thought that you're going to do down the line. He took all of those sins on himself, and he died in your place for those sins. But not only does he take those things away, the guilt, the shame, the stigma, the sin of that, but he also gives us the righteousness of his perfect life, and he credits that to our account. So when we come before God on a morning like this to sing and worship and be with the people of God, when we go to work tomorrow morning, when we're with our family, when people find out something bad about us, we don't stand in the shame and guilt and sin of that thing because Christ has taken it away from us already. We stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ. God is not disapproving of you in Christ. He is pleased with you. He loves you. He is for you, no matter what you've done or no matter what might have been done to you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But even if we do begin to live in this truth and stop defining ourselves by what we've done or what we do and start to allow Christ and his life to define us, we do still live in this ongoing tension around the fact that, yes, we love Jesus, we want to follow him, we want to serve him, but at the same time, we fail, we mess up, we sin, we don't do the things we should do every single day. So how can we conquer sin and change by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8 really talks about. So I'm going to quickly cover five things. The first, if you want to overcome sin and live a new life, live a life centered on and filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't just saying in this chapter that we need to add a bit of the Spirit to our lives. Like take two teaspoons of the Spirit, add it, stir it in, and then you'll be good to go. He's talking about a new kind of life that is lived in the Spirit and filled by and empowered by and energized by the Spirit, not just adding a little tinge of the Spirit to the old life that we used to have. So how does he describe this? Well, in verse 2, Paul says, The Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death to live a new life. You're no, no longer a slave to that old life. You're no longer a slave to that sin. You're no longer a slave to who you used to be. You've been set free so you can live a new life. Verse 4, He calls us to walk a new way according to the Spirit. Not down the old paths or the old directions we used to walk, not to the old places we used to go. He calls us actually to walk in a new way, the way of the Spirit, in the direction that the Spirit is leading us. Verse 5 and 6, he tells us to set our minds on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. In verse 9 to 11, he tells us that we are in Christ And that if you are in Christ, that the Spirit is in you and you are in the Spirit. Now, this is something that I love. This we see again and again throughout the New Testament, that there's this weird, beautiful, theological Russian nesting doll situation going in. You know those little dolls? One doll and another doll and another doll. That's what's going on here. So in Colossians 3 verse 3, Paul writes and says, For you have died, you, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So it's this very complicated thing, is that if you are in Christ... Also, Christ is in you, and in Christ you are in God, but at the same time, the Spirit is in you, and you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in Christ. So I don't know how to describe that to you, but he's trying to describe a life that is baptized or immersed in God, not a life that adds a bit of God on, sprinkles a bit of God on top. We're talking about a life absolutely saturated in the life of God. That's the idea that's going on here. In fact, Romans 8 is about making our dwelling or our home in God. Thank you, Brains. I'm obviously looking really dehydrated and haggard here at the front. I'm so sorry, you guys. Shell and I moved last Saturday, 
We moved down the road, literally 900 meters from where we'd been staying. And it was a long process. It, it probably took us a year to find the place that we moved into. A lot of time on Property 24, a lot of visits to different places. We finally found this place. And then when we found it, a lot of paperwork, a lot of phone calls, a lot of admin to just kind of secure it. And then when we knew we were going to move into it, a lot of admin organizing all of the stuff in our place to move into another place. Talking boxes and tape and bubble wrap and newspaper. We're talking slowly packing everything away. I think just packing up our kitchen took like four hours. It was a nightmare. But then that's just wrapping up. Then you've got to move everything into the new place and set it in place. Each thing in each room where it's supposed to be. Making your home somewhere or dwelling somewhere requires effort and energy. And that's what's happening in Romans 8. The Spirit is making His home in you. This isn't a flippant thing. He's packing up and setting up home inside of you. And we are making our home inside the Spirit. We're packing up and beginning to dwell inside of Him. And as we make our home in God, we start to receive a new kind of life, a resurrection life, a gospel life, a kingdom life, a Jesus life, an eternal life inside of Him. The second way we change is to set our minds. We've already seen it, Romans 8 verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, the worldly sinful desires and habits that are contrary to the ways of Jesus. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds or reset their minds on the things of the Spirit. I don't know if you guys have gotten a new phone or a new laptop in the last while, but there's a setup process associated with that. Like back in the day on like a VCR or even an oven stove, you'd have to set in the time. It's really cool with new technology. You don't. You just set in the time zone, automatically syncs it to the right time. But you still do need to kind of transfer all your files. You need to set things in place. You need to add the apps you want. Whatever it is, you need to set up that device. And this is, again, the kind of thing Paul's speaking about here. Set your minds from where it was set, the way it was, to the new setting it needs to be, which is on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. This isn't just like a casual thing. You know, this isn't just our focus. This is what captures our imagination. This is what consumes our thought life. He's saying, whatever that is, take your mind off of those things and put them on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. And this is so important because the things that our minds dwell on start to shape us. They start to turn us into a certain kind of person. They control our lives. So I want to ask you to answer this for yourself today. What is your mind set on? Your mind set on the Spirit or the flesh? If it's not the Spirit, what is your mind consumed with and focused on? Because Paul is telling us to take our minds off of those things and be focused on the Spirit. Thirdly, put to death the sins of the body by the Spirit. Verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We have an obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, very violent language, if you mortify, if you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, it's not just saying physically live. It's talking about the life that is truly life, life and life to the full inside of Christ. If we put sin to death by the Spirit, that life can be ours. Now, to put to death is a violent term. We're told in the Bible not to murder. But here it's saying murder sin in your life by the power of the Spirit. It's calling us to reject totally these things that are contrary to the ways of God 
and then to violently deal with them, to wage war, to start a war with the sinful desires inside of ourselves, which is quite a big deal. Have you started that war in your own life? Back in the day, the theologians called this mortification. That's what putting to death sin was, mortification, which sounds so much more serious, you know? So there's actually an Australian extreme Christian heavy metal band that used to be called Light Force, but they went, no, that's way too tame. Let's call ourselves Mortification. And they've got names to some of their songs like Bathed in the Blood, Satan's Destruction, like crazy names like that. You can find them on Apple Music if you want. Not really my cup of tea. But they were Christians who wanted to really highlight how we radically deal with sin. But we don't really use that word like that, even though the French word mort means death. But we talk about being mortified. You're mortified because you're so embarrassed over something you've done. You're so embarrassed you want to die. You want the ground to open up and swallow you. So that's never happened to me, obviously. You know, that's never happened. But Brendan, it happens to all the time. So I did actually ask him if I could share this story because I feel like it's such a good illustration of this. But Brendan was at work and he was getting into the lift the one day. And he gets in with a lady that he knows they've been working together. And he's been told, he has the information that this woman is pregnant. You guys know exactly where this is going. I know your minds are way ahead. So Brendan's wise. If you know Brendan, he's a very smart guy. He's never going to ask someone if they are pregnant because you don't do that. You make mistakes. You look like a fool. But Brendan has been told by multiple sources, this person is pregnant. He knows she is. So he's just being thoughtful. And he says, I believe you're pregnant. How's it going? How far along are you so excited for you? And the doors of the lift close and they slowly go from the first to the 11th floor. And the lady said, no, 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 from the first to the 11th floor, as Brendan died and wanted the ground to open up and swallow him. The worst part of the story is it wasn't just the two of them in the lift. There was a third person who got to watch and enjoy this entire experience. So while Brendan was mortified and this lady was mortified, this third person tried to hold in their laughter and has probably dined out on the story for years, telling person after person how Brendan made this mistake. When we embarrass ourselves like that, we're mortified, we want to die. But what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is that we need to put sin to death. We need to go to war with sin. We need to deal with it radically. And he's not trying to guilt us here. He's trying to show us the seriousness of sin, but he's not trying to make us feel with guilt because he knows guilt is not a good motivation to change. He's saying, as you think of sin and as you think of what Christ has done, how seriously God responds to sin, how he hates it, how radically he dealt with it, we have to take the same posture in our own lives. And we don't look back with guilt over what we've done. We look back with gratitude over how much God loves us and the price he paid to set us free from this, that we could have a new life inside of Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? We look back and we thank him for what he's done. But the reality is, we do want to change. God doesn't want you to feel guilty about your sin, but he wants you to hate it and fight it and put it to death. This is an active act on our part, not a passive response or stance. This is not a let go and let God moment. But as we fight sin in our own lives, we don't do this in our own strength. Some of you in this room are very self-disciplined. You've got incredible self-control. You're very able. And you could probably overcome any of these external things in your life and stop doing them. 
The reality is we can deal with the fruit of our lives, the external or surface things, the things that people see, but we can't change our hearts and our own strength. We can't change what is deep inside us under the surface, the the roots. We can change the fruit, but we can't change the fruit, the root. Roots determine fruits. You got it? Roots determine fruits. But what the Spirit of God does is he goes down deep into our center, into our heart, to the root of the matter, and he poisons those roots. He puts them to death. He cuts them out. He destroys those roots, and then he plants new seeds inside of us, new seeds that are going to grow up, to promote and present and form the life that God desires inside of us, new roots that determine new fruit. He's giving us new power to put sin to death in our lives and to live a new life. And that's what we see in Romans 8. New life, new freedom, new way, new power, new freedom, new roots, new fruit, new identity. That is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Galatians 5 describes this kind of fruit of a changed character and a changed person by showing the spirit-filled life that produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control inside of us. That is not our work. That is the work of the spirit forming a new character in us. So if you desire that kind of life, immerse yourself in the life of the spirit and ask the spirit to come and put to death these things at the root inside of you. Fourthly, remember the cross. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through whose spirit who dwells in you. You know what's amazing about the spirit? He doesn't draw attention to himself, but he points us back to the cross. He says, remember Christ resurrected, raised from the dead. He points us back to Jesus and his death and his resurrection and how he dealt with sin twice in those Well, in that one verse, the Spirit wants us to remember the cross. And we need to. We need to remember this and remind ourselves on this and set our minds on these things again and again, daily throughout the day, so that we can overcome sin in our lives. It's like these little mantras, these little gospel mantras we need to preach to ourselves again and again and again. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English preacher from about 60 years ago, said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. And the point he's making is something we all know, because we all already preach sermons to ourselves throughout the day. Whether you're a Christian or not today, I know that you do this. Some of us preach good sermons to ourselves, and some of us preach really destructive, unhelpful sermons to ourselves throughout the day. If you exercise, I'm pretty sure you do do this. If you're running, if you're at the gym, if you're training, you're saying, you can do this. Three more minutes. Come on, five more reps, whatever it is. You're preaching so that you will actually be able to do the kind of things that you want to do. I um, started boxing a couple of years ago, and in the gym I was at, I definitely had to preach to myself because I'm so unfit. The trainer would be preaching to us, just come on, 30 seconds, push, push, you can do it. And he would not let us stop. And then on top of that, the wall that we trained in front of, that preached to us. It had about 30 signs up on the wall, all preaching these different inspiring messages to us so that we would continue doing these things. And the two that stood out to me the most are this. The first said, 
sweat is fat crying. And the second said, pain is weakness leaving the body. And I'd sometimes be on the ground or doing what I needed to do, and I'd just go, pain is weakness leaving the body. Sweat is fat crying. Try and give myself the encouragement to keep going a little bit more. Sadly, I think a lot of us actually preach terrible, condemning, harsh messages to ourselves and define ourselves again by the things we do or have done or have had done to us rather than by what Christ has done for us. Can I ask you again, what sermons do you preach to yourself throughout the day? What mantras do you let play on your head? What is the soundtrack of your life that is playing behind the scenes all of the time? If we want to change, we need to remember the cross and preach the right sermons to ourselves. Lastly, how do we change? The Spirit reveals who we are in Christ. Verse 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Don't you love that? Like that revelation gets us and we cry out, Abba, Father, like Dad, we've got it. It's sunk down deep inside of us. This passage in Romans 8 on the work of the Spirit in our lives is interestingly bookmarked in verse 1 and here from verse 14 to 16 by these two key identity pieces. Verse 1, I know I keep beating this drum. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are not defined by what you have done. You are defined by what Jesus has done. You have a new identity in him and a new position before the Father. Verse 14 to 16, you are a son or a daughter of God in Christ. That is who you are. You can't lose that position. You didn't do anything to earn it. That is who you are. We sung that this morning. That is who you are. That, we need to remind ourselves of who he is. But I want to ask you today, do you believe those two identity pieces? Do you believe there's no condemnation for you? Do you believe that you're a son or daughter of God? And not only do you believe it, but are you living in that reality? You might have seen uh, the story in the news recently about the former king of Belgium, King Albert II. Anyone read the story? Sheesh, you guys, you should really pick up a newspaper sometimes. <laughs> about two decades ago, or he started denying that a girl was his daughter. She claimed that 51 years ago, his, her mother had an affair with the king, and she was born because of that affair. Imagine living 50 years of your life being told that this king was your father, and for 20 years fighting for that to be acknowledged, for the king to acknowledge that you are the child. The 85-year-old ex-king said in a statement about a couple of weeks ago, that he finally recognized that this woman, she's an artist named Delphine Bowell, is his biological daughter. He's finally acknowledging that he is the dad. And he did this because he didn't want any more painful legal action. She first took the case to the courts in 2013, after the king abdicated the throne and could finally be tried for any mistakes he had made or any crimes he had committed. But she, in 2005, had first publicly started to speak about the fact that she was the daughter of this king. But Albert refused since that time to ever acknowledge that she was saying these things publicly. He completely ignored her, and when they went to trial, he repeatedly denied that he was her father again and again for seven years. Until in May 2019, he was forced by a court to take a paternity test. Otherwise, he would be fined 5,000 euro 
every single day until it was done. Pretty good reason to take the paternity test. And finally, after that test came out, it showed that she really was his daughter. The affair had happened. She was the daughter of the king. Now, I want you to imagine that for 20 years of your life. I don't know when she found out, when her mom told her, but for 20 years of your life, you are fighting for the truth to be acknowledged that you are the daughter of the king. All you want is for that to be acknowledged. That is like one of the most core fundamental identity things, that you are my father. That's all I want you to acknowledge. And for 20 years, you're ignored, you're rejected, you're told you're crazy, and in court, it's denied by the king until finally that comes out. The irony of this is that many of us are playing the story out, but the other way around. The king of kings, the king of the universe, has been, since you were born, standing with open arms saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, would you come to me? Would you be my child, child of the king? Would you live into this identity? And for many of us, we've run from him or are still to this day running away from the fact that we are a child of the king. Harbour City, the king loves you and wants a relationship with you. Will you stop running or will you live into the reality of who you are inside of Christ, that you are his child? Can I ask you to stand and pray with me? Can I ask you guys just to close your eyes for a second? There's four things that I really emphasize today. Spirit doesn't just empower us to speak in tongues and prophesy. He doesn't just give us goosebumps. The Spirit wants to help us to change. He wants to help us to live free from condemnation, to know who we are in Christ, God's children, to put sin to death and empower us to live a new life. I don't know if you've ever given your child a gift or received a gift as a child or your niece or your nephew have received a gift and they're so excited about it and they start unwrapping the packaging, um, the wrapping paper, your beautiful way you've um, wrapped this gift. And you know, inside of this wrapping is this gift that they have just been wanting, desiring, longing for. And it's the kind of gift that uh, makes a lot of noise. It's got sounds, it's got beeping and bopping and all the rest. It plays music and it's got flashing lights. And as this child begins to open this gift to see what it is, they realize it's the gift that they've been longing for. It's the gift they've always wanted. It's the gift that has been on their list for a really long time. But for some reason, it's not working. When they push the buttons and uh, try to like make the lights flash it's just not working and the parent suddenly realizes as they look on the packaging that it says batteries not included which is really every parent's worst nightmare and um, I think if that's you or if it's it's happened to me you kind of have this moment in your mind where you're like what kind of cruel monster doesn't provide the power this thing needs to do what it's supposed to do. And I think sometimes for a lot of us, we can almost feel like that in our relationship with God. Like we read about in the scriptures how he empowers us to change, but we kind of feel like, where are the batteries? Where is that power? And I really believe this morning that God is wanting to remind us that actually 
He has given us all we need for life and godliness in Him, that He is the one who has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower our lives so that we can be transformed and changed into His image to become more like Him, to find true life in Him, that He does not leave us on our own to try and exhaust ourselves with performance to become someone that we think is a better version of ourselves. But actually this morning has promised each and every one of us is the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who provides the battery, so to speak, of who we want to become, and that's like him. And so this morning, perhaps you feeling like (laughs) you just don't know how to change an area of your life. You don't know how to believe what God says about you, that you are a daughter or a son of his. You don't know how to like get out of the stuckness that you feel in with a certain sin or way of um, life or way you're living. I really believe that this morning God is inviting you to accept the gift of the Holy Spirit to work powerfully within you, not to exhaust yourself or to feel like you have to perform, but that he is saying, this is the gift I give to you. And so I'm going to call some of our leaders up this morning, if you're a leader at Harbor City, um, just to be available for prayer. If you feel like you need or want prayer for the Holy Spirit to move in your life, to um, fill you, to remind you of who God says you are, to enable you to become more like Jesus or to experience the freedom that the Bible the Bible says that we have in Jesus. It says in the scriptures where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you feel like you need freedom this morning, we invite you to come up for prayer and to receive from the Holy Spirit.